Good morning. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would descend upon this place as we study your word together, that you, been, that you would open our eyes to the ways that you are restoring your image and glory among us. Amen. All right, well, I wanted to just quickly recap where we've been before we get to this text today in First or Second Corinthians chapter 3. Um, we've now been in, in this series for three weeks. Um, the first week we talked about eschatology, the way that um, the present evil age and the age to come overlap. The age to come is characterized, as we've seen, by new covenant, uh, by spirit, by faithful obedience, by resurrection. The present evil age is characterized by old covenant, flesh, sin, and death. And then in the second week, we talked about Paul's um, cross-shaped ministry, the ways that his other-centered, um, self-giving ministry, which was modeled on Jesus, looked like foolishness to the rulers of this age, the wisdom of this age, which is characterized by a, an inward focus being curved in on itself. And then last week we talked about Paul's defense of his cross-shaped ministry against the self-centered alternatives that were on offer from the super apostles. He'd been criticized as foolish, as inferior, as weak, as unimpressive in speech and presence. And he linked the self-promoting posture of the super apostles, kind of characterized by their letters of recommendation, with the present evil age by, by comparing those letters of recommendation to the tablets of the old covenant written on stone, and contrasting that with the new covenant, which was written in human hearts. The super apostles um, were curved in on themselves, they boasted in themselves and their flesh, and they had the kind of posture that would have seen Paul's ministry as foolishness, right? An example of death leading to death rather than life leading to life. So that's kind of where we've been. And um, I just wanted to take one moment this morning to, to explain the way that, that, that I make sense of the parts of Scripture is, just for me personally, I understand things by understanding how they fit together. So I understand a part in relation to the whole. And that's really the reason that we've been covering as much ground as we have in these sermons. I know that we've, we've really gone through a lot of stuff. We've gotten through a lot of Old Testament background in this series. I know it's a heavy lift um, and that it's demanding, um, but that's why I do it. For me, understanding how this part of Scripture fits into that broader narrative is the way that I make sense of it. So thank you guys for bearing with me as we do that. And so to set the stage for our passage today, we're going to do a similar thing. We're going to trace some biblical themes again. And specifically what we're going to look at is the themes of image and glory. So um, for starters, what I wanted to do is revisit something we talked about last week. Um, we talked about the vision for creation that is laid out in Genesis. Humanity is God's image bearers there. And we talked about these four ordered relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation, and our relationship with the self when those things are ordered as well. And as far as the theme of the image of God is concerned, here's what it says in Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. God said, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
God created the human in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So the biblical scholar Greg Beale says that the ruling and the subduing that is described here plausibly serve as a kind of functional definition for what it means to be made in the image of God. In other words, Genesis says that we're made in the image of God, and then it explains what that means, practically speaking, with this concept of ruling over and subduing creation. Beale also notes how um, images of the gods in, in the ancient Near East had to do with the presence of the God. Images were understood to be the place through which that God manifested his presence and conveyed his blessings. So we kind of saw this last time with those four ordered relationships. We see human beings um, placed in creation as God's images for the purpose of being God's representatives, okay, for exercising his benevolent rule over creation. So that's, what's, that's, that's this biblical theme of image that's going on and, and, and um, will come up today. Glory is actually a pretty related concept in some ways. So Beale again says that image and glory are um, connected in the ancient Near East, that in, in many of the societies that were kind of contemporary with the ancient Israelites, it was the kings who were understood to be the image of the God. And just as a brief side note, that's one way that there's a pretty radical democratization of that concept in our Bible. It's all human beings, not just the kings who are the images of God. Um, <clears throat> but that said, it was, it was the kings who were understood sort of more broadly to be the images of the God. And, and that gives Adam and Eve a kind of kingly function in that story. So in any case, this meant that the king reflected the God's glory, Beale says. And so Adam and Eve, as God's image bearers, were to reflect God's glory through the whole earth. Now, if we look at and compare Psalm 8 to Genesis 1, we can see the connection there. Okay? We can see further evidence for how image and glory are connected. Starting in verse 4, Psalm 8 says, What is a person that you are mindful of him? a son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crown him with glory and honor. You have made him to rule over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. So where Genesis 1 has this idea of an image Psalm 8 has human beings crowned with glory and honor. And N.T. Wright makes a similar suggestion about this passage that Beale makes about Genesis 1. He says that the statements about rule and dominion, are that they explain what this glory and honor are all about. Okay, so being made in God's image, reflecting God's glory are related, and they express the idea of exercising God's rule over creation in God's way. So 
that's one way that glory kind of comes through in the Old Testament. It's also, it's, it's a complex concept, glory is. Um, the, the Hebrew word is kabod, which will come up in a second. Um, suffice it to say for now that in addition to this functional meaning, right, God exercising God's rule over creation, glory also refers to God's shining presence. God's shining presence with his people. Okay? And we see that meaning all through the Old Testament. And um, one example is the story of Moses in Exodus 33 and 34 that Paul is going to draw on in our text today. So in that story, Moses was meeting with God after the episode of idolatry with the golden calf. Okay? And after smashing the first tablets that contained the Ten Commandments, he returned up the mountain to intercede for the people. He was asking God to forgive them, and he was asking God that God's presence would continue to go with them after this. And eventually God agrees, and then it says that Moses said, now show me your glory. This is from Exodus 33, verses 19 and 20. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. So what God does is he makes arrangements for Moses to kind of be hidden in the cleft of a rock. He's going to hide Moses as he passes by and allow Moses to see his back. And so after this meeting with God, and after sort of making a new set of stone tablets with the law, Moses goes down to the people again. And here's what we read in Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came, to, came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So when Moses sees God's glory, his own face shines as a result. The idea of God's shining presence also comes up, um, in, in his descent on the temple and on the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Those are really important texts for, for, the, um, for, the, for the Israelites and, and how they understood themselves. God's presence among them was one of the sort of defining characteristics of who they were. And so after, you know, the work on the tabernacle is finished under Moses, um, God's shining presence, his glory, fills the tabernacle. We're told in Exodus 40. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, so, so the glory of the Lord descends on this tabernacle, and it's just this radiant, shining presence of God there. Now, on the other hand, in the period of the judges that, that follows this, the people of Israel decided they want to wield God's presence as a kind of weapon against the Philistines in this battle at Shiloh. Okay? But God is not a tool that's just to be like used to one's own ends that way. And what happens is that the battle is lost. 
the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines, and the corrupt priests who carried it are killed in the battle. One of their wives, who is in the process of childbirth as she receives the news of this kind of tragic set of events, um, she was, and, and it says that she named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because, the, because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. That name, Ichabod, is from that word for glory, kavod. So Ichabod means something like, where is the glory? So as the Ark, which is the symbol of God's presence, is captured, God's glory departs. That's the idea being represented there. And we have some parallel stuff that happens with the temple okay, later on. So as you know, the, the temple is completed under Solomon's supervision, the priest's kind of final act is to put the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies in the temple. So in 1 Kings 8, it says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Okay, so we see God's, God's shining presence filling the temple again. But then, kind of like what happened at Shiloh, okay, generations later, the people have turned to idols. They've oppressed the poor and needy. Um, and remember that whenever people turn to false images, the abuse of God's true images is right there in the wake of it. God's true image bearers are dishonored. So anyway, after many warnings, the curses of the covenant have finally come upon the people. And Jeremiah speaks to them for God in his temple sermon in, in Jeremiah 7. So there we read Jeremiah telling them on God's behalf, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner and the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. So note those relations, the relationships reflected there in God's desire for his people, right? There's a readily ordered relationship with God in that they're not worshiping idols, with each other in that they're not committing injustice. And that results in them being present in the land, so an ordered relationship with the creation, specifically the land that God had promised them. But the people... What the people actually do is they murder, they commit adultery and perjury, they burn incense to Baal, and they follow their gods. And despite doing all these things, they think that because the temple is in their land, that they're safe from attack, from destruction. But Jeremiah tells them otherwise. So he continues, Go now to the place in Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. So this is a reference to the, the story that we just read, right? While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites the people of Ephraim. And that's precisely what happens. God's glory 
the temple is destroyed, God's glory departs. Again, and it has to do with the people's idolatry and injustice. So, <clears throat> we've looked at the interwoven themes of image and glory now. Um, glory has a wide range of meaning, but it includes this idea of God's shining presence among his people. Um, and when Moses encounters it, it has the effect of causing him to shine as well. And similarly, we've seen how being crowned with glory, humanity being crowned with glory and honor, um, as God's image bearers, that can also be understood to be, you know, for, for us to be exercising God's benevolent rule over creation. So it makes sense that these things go together, because if we are to represent God's presence here in creation, okay, it makes sense that the shining nature of God's true presence would go along with that. Um, one kind of final thing that connects to this is, is it's notable the way that glory, whether we're talking about God's presence or whether we're talking about our image-bearing responsibility and role in God's creation, the glory and sin are not compatible. Glory is present when the love of God and neighbor are rightly ordered. When we, what, what, but when we become curved in on ourselves, as we've been talking about, right, through idolatry, through injustice, glory departs. And that's an important theme in the book of Romans. In, in Romans 1, it talks about, um, it says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And it says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like immortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So Greg Beale suggests that while Adam and Eve didn't lose the image of God altogether, it did become distorted in that the image lost what he calls its glorious aspect. And he adds that that view is also what's reflected in Romans 3.23, which reads, For all have sinned and are lacking the glory of God. Okay, for that understanding of lacking, um, there's, there's, he provides support for that idea. But, but sin is, is, is the reason why we lack God's glory. And if that's what Paul does mean, as I assume it does, he wouldn't have been alone in that view. So because there's, there's lots of other sort of contemporaneous Jewish literature that understands Adam and Eve to have lost God's glory in the fall after they sinned. So God's glory is God's shining presence with his people. To be made in the image of God is to represent God's presence, and to exercise his benevolent rule over creation. But this has to be done in God's way. When we are, become curved in on ourselves, when we fracture those four relationships, when that rule becomes oppressive or abusive, God's glory departs. Okay, so that's the themes of image and glory as we find them in, in the Old Testament. And so now we can come to our passage in, in 2 Corinthians 3. Um, like I said, last week we saw how Paul defended his ministry by associating with spirit, with life, with new covenant of the age to come, as opposed to the flesh, death, and the old covenant of the present evil age. We saw that because of flesh and sin being curved in on ourselves, the letter kills. And we can now add to that concept this loss of glory that's associated with sin and death as well. Okay? But, Paul says, the spirit gives life. The spirit restores that glory. So here's our passage for today. 
Paul continues on from this statement that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He says, now the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory. So that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because its glory, transitory though it was, um, uh, sorry, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So last week, Paul compared the kind of bad aspects of the Old Covenant with, um, the, the, with the New Covenant. And now he says that even the good aspects of the Old Covenant, even the law, which was a gift of God, um, even this thing, you know, this, this, this ministry of Moses, when we compare that, which did come with glory, to the ministry of the Spirit, because the ministry of the Spirit is something that lasts, it almost follows that it's going to be more glorious, all right? That even when we compare the good aspects of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Covenant, will, like, it, it, it's still lacking in comparison. Okay, Moses was in God's presence, and he kind of absorbed God's glory, you, in a way of speaking. Um, but that, that glory didn't transform him permanently. It, it faded. That's kind of what Paul's point is here about the transitory nature of it. It ultimately faded away. So the, the ministry of the Old Covenant, as we saw last week, it brought condemnation because of flesh and sin, because we're curved in on ourselves, and nothing in the Old Covenant empowered us to keep it. But, but even that ministry, even that, that ministry lacking as it was in, in the Spirit, lacking as it was in empowering people to keep it, even that ministry came with glory. And so what Paul's arguing here is that the new covenant, which is accompanied by Spirit, which does empower us to keep the law, to love God, to love neighbor, will certainly be more glorious. Okay, the old covenant and the glory that accompanied it was fading, whereas the new covenant will last. It's, it's worth noting here, bringing up, especially in translations like, um, like this one, that the word that the NIV translates as transitory here is a Greek word, katargeo. And Paul uses it about 25 times in his corpus. It means, it, it, it means that um, it can mean to nullify or to invalidate something, to make it ineffective. And it can also mean to abolish something, to bring something to its end. But the thing is, while Paul's meaning shifts a little bit depending on the context of how he uses this, he often applies this to things that are connected to each other, and specifically to things that have to do with this present evil age that are passing away. So here are some examples of how Paul uses it. Um, in, in Romans 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be katargeo, might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. In Romans 7, he says, by, but now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been katargeo, we've been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. In 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the lowly things of this world, and the despised things, the things which are not, to katargeo, to nullify the things that are. 
1 Corinthians 2, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, which are katargeo, coming to nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, when completeness comes, what is in part katargeo disappears. 1 Corinthians 15, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has katargeo, destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be katargeo is death. Okay, all of those things have to do with this present evil age. It's all different dimensions of it, things that are passing away as, this, as the age to come comes in its fullness. And so the ministry of the new covenant, lasting and empowered by the Spirit as it is, will have more glory than the old covenant, which is katargeo, okay, which is passing away, along with all those other aspects of the present evil age. Okay, so Paul continues in our passage. He says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was katargeo, what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it katargeo, is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So what Paul's saying here is that his ministry, this ministry of spirit and new covenant, need not be veiled like the old covenant was. And Paul is using this concept of veiling to describe two related things. First, the veil just hid the glory of Moses' face. The reason for that veiling was that the, the glory was terrifying for those who saw it. Okay, for the people who lacked glory. Because they had just come off this episode of the golden calf. And the glory on Moses' face, like the law itself, exposed their sin. It exposed that they had exchanged the glory of God for idols. But second, Paul is suggesting that the transitory nature of the old covenant, okay, like the glory that accompanied it, was veiled as well. So in other words, people didn't understand that that old covenant was not ultimate. They didn't understand that a greater covenant was coming. And Paul says that a similar veil still prevents people, some people even in his own day, from seeing the transitory passing nature of the old covenant. It's only in Jesus that that veil is taken away. Okay. Know that in the former covenant, it's the glory that, is, that passes away. In the new covenant, it's the veil that passes away. So when we encounter Jesus, in other words, we see that the old age is headed towards its end. It's being abolished, along with everything that's associated with it, with sin, with death, with the old covenant, and the veil that keeps us from seeing the transitory nature of all that. We also see that the age to come, okay, of spirit, of life, of new covenant, of glory that does not fade, we see that that has begun in Jesus. And so what Paul is describing here with this language of veiling is precisely the transformation in worldview and eschatology that we've been talking about all along here. It's just tackling it from a slightly different angle. So that's what brings us finally to this transformation that, uh, that Jesus and the Spirit bring about. Paul continues on, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Though we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, which is displayed in the face of Christ. Now, there's some interesting and unusual flux in the ways that Paul refers to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here. Um, we can't get into that, but it's very Trinitarian. And the point of all of it is that in Christ and the Spirit, God has set about restoring his image and glory in creation. And that's the ministry that Paul participates in. So as we behold the Spirit, who is the Spirit of the Lord, whose glory is seen displayed in the face of Christ, we're transformed. Jesus came as the true human, as the true image of God. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And the Spirit helps us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see God's glory there in Jesus as we behold him. It's the Spirit that unites us to Christ so that we can participate in that glory. It's the Spirit that transforms us so that we, begin to sh that we can begin to share in it, share in Christ's glory which is God's glory. So in doing this, the Spirit restores the image and the glory of God in us. We, in Christ and the Spirit, are restored as God's glorious image bearers in creation. Restored to God, restored to each other, restored to creation, and ultimately to ourselves as well. And so because that glory is restored, a veil is no longer necessary. Okay? Because of our participation in Christ and the Spirit, we need no longer be afraid of God's glory. We share in it. Okay? Because of the hope that stems from being members of the new covenant by the Spirit, whose glory will last and not fade, we are very bold, Paul says. And furthermore, the veil that, that hid the transience of the old age, that as well is taken away. We see the old age and its values for what they are, fading, coming to nothing. We understand that the age to come, which will last, has broken through in Christ and the Spirit. So that said, um, this gospel, this good news, remains veiled to some. And hopefully you see the parallels to chapter 2, um, verses 14 through 17 here, right? 
In chapter 2, Paul talked about how we are the fragrance of Christ and how among those who are perishing, that's an, an aroma from death to death. Okay, we talked about that. And he's basically saying the same thing again here. The gospel that he preaches about Jesus' other-centered, self-giving love is veiled to some people. They can't see the glory there. They look at Jesus, they can't see the glory there. And it's because they're stuck in the mindset of this present evil age. The God of this age has blinded their eyes. So the way that Paul has come back to this theme helps us to draw some things together in closing. Okay? What is the glory of God? What does it mean to be God's image bearers? To find that out, Paul would say, look no further than Jesus and his other-centered, self-giving, cross-shaped love. That was what God's glorious image bearers were always supposed to be. Other-centered, not curved in on ourselves. It's being curved in on ourselves, sinful. That's the reason that we're lacking the glory of God. And so as such, Paul recognizes that true ministry will not and cannot be self-centered or self-promoting. And so he does not preach himself, he says, like the super apostles who thought in terms of this age, who were lacking the glory of God. He preaches Jesus as Lord and himself as a servant. Why does he do that? It's because the new creation light of God has shown in his heart, it's shown him that the glory of God is made known in the face of Jesus, who himself came as a servant with his other-centered self-giving love. That is the image and glory of God. That is how the four relationships with God, with others, with creation, with self are restored. So let me encourage you um, to spare you more extended reading, um, to read Romans 8, 13 through 21 yourselves at some point in light of all we've talked about. There are lots of connections with their love, but um, I'm not going to make them here. So in closing, God's, God's benevolent rule, what we've talked about is being, you know, what, what being made in God's image, what, what being crowned in glory and honor. That rule cannot be exercised apart from his other-centered, self-giving, servant love. It's in the cross-shaped, other-centered, self-giving, faithful love of Jesus lived out in us by the Spirit that restores us as God's image bearers in and over creation. Okay? From glory to glory, as the glory of Jesus is brought about in us. Let me pray. Lord God, we believe these things that you speak to us in your word. We believe that you are transforming us to reflect your glory that your spirit involves and empowers us. We also acknowledge that to some degree we have to take these things on faith because there are times where we don't see that in our lives. And so, Lord, we trust you. We trust that you would continue this good work that you've started in us. We trust that you would continue to restore your image in us, your glory in us, so that we could reflect as in a mirror the glory of Jesus to those that we encounter.